0: Two, three, four. five It's about five. Six. Yes. When the bullet came through the car, he laid backwards so that he didn't
1: get hit. Well, that was crazy,
2: man. They they went rogue. They they just shielded themselves behind uh, innocent bystanders during rush hour, and they started shooting, and they never stopped shooting uh, until everybody was
3: dead. What I am shocked the most about is that more people were not struck by bullets.
4: A shootout in the middle of a busy intersection. Commuters making their way home around 5 p.m. on a Thursday. The shock of that day has especially never worn off for Frank Ordonez's family and Rick Cutshaw's, They were the two innocent victims killed when armed robbers held up a jewelry store on December 5th, 2019, then hijacked the 27-year-old UPS driver and took him and his truck on a 25-mile chase. The truck and police would cross two counties and zigzag through a number of cities in the late afternoon, the robber driving the UPS truck making daring moves His last move would cost both him and his accomplice and two innocent victims their lives. Local 10 and local10.com present The Florida Files. I'm Michelle Solomon, and this is Police Chase Gone Wrong. Two bold robbers, two innocent victims, 20 police officers, approximately 200 bullets, and families still looking for answers three years after the fact. On the news that evening, Local 10's Janice Fernandez retraces the route of the UPS truck.
5: A chaotic chase turning deadly. It started on Miracle Mile in Coral Gables. The whole scene playing out live in the middle of rush hour traffic.
6: A hijacked UPS truck that is
3: being followed by police.
5: The suspects speeding with police close behind from Coral Gables making their way to Broward County. Heading northbound on I-75, driving on the shoulder while trying to evade police, but they remained close behind as the truck gets off on Pines Boulevard. Going back on the shoulder, bypassing traffic, now heading down Pines Boulevard. Watch as they zoom right through an intersection. While this whole thing unfolds, the suspects firing shots at police then entering Century Village, an elderly community in Pembroke Pines, just running past stop signs, even at times getting close to hitting other cars. And as they exit Century Village, more close calls like this one, when the driver runs past another red light. Shortly after, the driver making a U-turn on Miramar Parkway. As they get stuck in traffic, police surround the UPS truck, guns drawn. Then a shootout in the middle of Miramar Parkway
4: chaos and confusion at the shootout, and then well into the evening for the family, holding out hope that Frank, the father of two young girls, was still alive.
2: Frank's fine, he's alive, and he's in the police station. And the cops, all, we, we had one of the UPSs, a friend of mine that was division manager, Martina Noga, and i know known him 40 years, and he said, no, they said that he's in this hospital, but he's not there. Then we went to Hialeah, no, we went to Hollywood Trauma, And we went there because they said he was there. They said he went to like three hospitals. And then they kept, he kept calling and and they said that he was at the Hollywood Trauma Center, that he was alive, but he was hurt. So we get there, all of us got there, and the, uh, I guess the receiving administration said there was no one by that name. And the administration said there's no one here by that name, but the FBI is on his way to talk to you. And that's when we had the bad news.
4: Frank's sister Genevieve was 15 years old when her brother was killed, the horror of it all playing out on live TV. She talks about how she found out the news of her brother's death on social media.
5: I found out my brother died through Instagram. My friends sent me a post of my brother, and it was saying, um, my condolences to Frank or adorn- his family, and I thought to myself, like, is this is a joke. Like, this is not funny. Yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know.
4: Five days later, the viewing, and then the funeral. The family trying to face the fact that Frank is really gone. Local 10's Andrew Perez reports. No era el tiempo de dejarlo
0: aquí. It's the last time she'll get to say goodbye to her son. A long procession, a walk to the gravesite. Frank Ordonez's mother opening up saying she's desperate for answers. She went on to say it wasn't his time to go. He was a hard working, young father. They believed this didn't have to happen. Among those at Frank's funeral though, the UPS driver whose route Ordonez was covering that deadly day.
2: Uh, he said to me, uh, I'm, the driver that, I'm the driver that called in and, I'm, and, and I, it should be me there, not, not Frank. And I said to him, you know, it's not your fault.
4: Frank Ordonez's family wonders why the police didn't act differently that day. In plain daylight rush hour, where was protocol? Where was SWAT? Where was the hostage negotiator? And so does Tom Cutshaw, whose 70-year-old brother, a union representative, was about eight miles from his house, driving from his job. He was stopped at a light at the intersection when the barrage of gunfire erupted. A bullet from the shootout pierced through his 2009 Lincoln Mercury Grand Marquis and hit him in the head, killing him.
1: Yeah, from the... From the... Uh, The high-speed chase, after I retired from Florida Power and Light, I actually worked nine years, um, holiday seasons for nine years, for UPS up in Chattanooga, uh, Tennessee, um, and was uh, rode in in the big brown UPS truck, which I find it fascinating that At 65 miles an hour, that truck would literally shake apart. It did not go that fast. It wasn't designed for high-speed chases. And, you know, from the very beginning, when they chased it up the interstate at what I would have considered a low-speed chase, that they had ample opportunity to stop it right then and there. But, you know, chose to go on and and cordon off a, a busy intersection at at rush hour, they, they they could have done several different. In my opinion, could have done several different things to, you know, achieve a better outcome. Why why the body count wasn't more? I, I it, it was just something that you you never expect to see in real life, and it was just a, just this horrible tragedy that that unfolded in in front of everybody's eyes.
4: Richard Diaz, an attorney in Coral Gables who's been practicing law for more than 30 years and for nine years before that, worked as a patrol officer and a detective for the Miami-Dade Police Department, agrees. Uh,
3: I am shocked, not that there wasn't a pit maneuver, not that this chase went as long as it did, not that the victim died. What I am shocked the most about is that more people were not struck by bullets because of the direction of fire The amount of rounds that I can tell was fired from just looking at the video uh, is close to miraculous.
4: I wanted to hear from someone with a background such as his and look to Diaz for an outsider's perspective. So when I speak with the families and they mention it frequently, um, and, you know, they always say, and everybody that talks about it, um, that's not somebody who really has a knowledge of it, they say, why would this happen with a hostage in the truck? Uh, why would law enforcement just kind of come out shooting, so to speak? Right. And then Richard Cutshaw, you know, who was stopped at a light, was shot. We don't know who shot him because it's an open investigation right now. Um, but that's always kind of the Monday morning quarterbacking, which is right. why would all these officers get out?
3: It's a loaded question. Uh, Before I answer it, let me tell you that I have the unique uh, position of having been in a shootout my fourth day on the job, which was a bank robbery in progress where they took a Miami-Dade police officer in uniform working off duty at the People's Bank on 184 and 160 Highway hostage. So I've actually been in that situation, and we exchanged gunfire with the robbers, the assailants. There were two of them. Uh, One died from the gunshot wounds. The other was hospitalized, and we had a tough decision to make we were satisfied that they were more likely than not going to shoot the officer or taking hostage. And when we fired, we were at risk of injuring or even killing our own officer. So sometimes that decision has to be made. And I want to make that clear. Here, however, I think the situation was, was vastly different because um, you had leading, there's three parts to this. I think, as I said before, one is the decision for the initial pursuit, then number two, the decision to continue the pursuit, and then number three, the decision to fire, right? The use of deadly force. So I've always said, and I continue to say that the the first two decisions were the right ones. You had to engage in the suit, you have a forcible felony, you have a robbery, armed subjects, it's a vehicle that you know cannot travel at a high rate of speed. Um, uh, You have a person who you know or reasonably know or believe is uh, being taken hostage. And so that second decision was the the right one. and now I'll get to the third part, uh, which I think is where, you know, where most people are interested in listening to, and that is the actual confrontation itself. These officers were very put themselves very much in a crossfire situation or a close crossfire situation. This wasn't what I would call a typical direct line to line crossfire situation, but it was sufficiently close enough that it should have been avoided, because it, it would not have been difficult for one of the officers on the left side or the right rear to have gotten struck with friendly fire, from what I saw, from the angles.
4: Couldn't they have waited a second when they saw him? Or couldn't they have, I don't know. The, uh, was there any way, I guess what I'm asking is, was the, the big question always is, in the conversation is, was there any way to save that hostage?
3: Is there a chance, and, and of course is there a hope? Yes, there is, that when you stop them, when there's a confrontation, That they will say, I give up, and they release a hostage? That can happen. But as between those two scenarios, you have to assume the worst. You hope for the best, you assume and prepare for the worst. And it's just, it's a tragic situation.
4: Joe and Lucy tell me there are so many deep wounds as they come upon the third anniversary of Frank's death. A time that's unbearably painful for them on so many levels, and also because it's so close to Christmas, they'll have their memorial to mark the dreadful day on December 5th.
2: There's a light pole there just before you get to the corner of Miramar and Flamingo, and it's 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 a public light, and there's a picture room with flowers and everything, and uh, there's a vigil every. She says that Frank would have loved that that vigil that we do for him every year, and people gather and and they get together and, and, um...
1: You remember him?
4: Yeah. On the two-year anniversary at the shooting site, they thought by this time they'd have more answers, some sort of resolution. Genevieve was inconsolable at the Miramar site surrounded by her parents and other loved ones on the second anniversary in 2021. Local 10's Syra Anwar was there.
5: A vigil held Sunday night in memory of Frank Ordonez, the UPS driver who was killed two years ago during that chase and shootout that made national headlines. His sister says the pain is still very real. Not having your brother, not having that companionship anymore, it just hurts. All we ask is for justice for him and his girls and our family because we've missed him a lot.
4: On September 16, 2020, lawyers representing Frank's two young daughters, now left fatherless, call a press conference announcing the lawsuit. Attorneys Michael Haggard and Adam Finkel say that the officers should have stopped the van before it became stuck in a densely populated area. Local 10's Alex Finney was at the press conference.
0: Frank Ordonez was the definition of a girl dad working very hard at UPS. His two young daughters, six and four years old, were his world. My two girls loved their dad. We are hearing from the Erdonia's family for the first time since he was killed in that UPS chase and shootout on December 5th of last year. His mother and the mother of his girls talking with the press today, their attorneys by their side, as they discussed the lawsuit, which named six police agencies alleging that they behaved negligently the day of the hostage situation.
1: Police agencies tried to box in two kidnappers who had a hostage and then they used civilians, civilians as human shields.
0: It was painful for the family today, but they felt it had to be done. I'm not really sure what's
1: the end result gonna be for this case, but the only thing that I can think of right now for myself and for my future are my children.
4: On April 7th, 2022, the family heard the ruling a judge declared sovereign immunity, effectively closing the case in favor of the police departments named as negligent in the suit.
2: We can get justice on the civil because whatever justice, I mean, what we wanted
3: was any compensation for the
4: judge. Lawyer Adam Finkel, who represented the family.
3: We certainly believe that the police acted improperly that day. The court ultimately decided that, and uh, you have a copy of the order that based on sovereign immunity, the case was to be dismissed. We truly believe that Frank Ordonia should still be alive. We always support crime victims and we certainly support the Ordonia's family. And we hope that they do receive justice, that no amount of money would ever have brought him back uh, to his family and to his daughters. And they continue to seek justice and the investigation, as far as we know on the criminal side, is still ongoing.
4: investigation is still ongoing. The Florida Department of Law Enforcement, whose job it is to investigate police-involved shootings, submitted their report to the Broward State Attorney's Office on September 15, 2021. In the Florida Files Episode 1, a police shootout, UPS driver held hostage, the families had told me that they hadn't heard from anyone, including police departments, nor the Broward State Attorney's Office. A state attorney's office spokesperson said voicemails were left on November 4th for both the Cutshaws and the Ordonez family. So I know you called me and told me you received a call from somebody at the Broward State Attorney's Office.
1: Right, yeah, right before, right before Thanksgiving, I got a call from Chuck, Chuck Morton, who was uh, with the Broward County District Attorney's Office. And um, he, he reached out, and he just he wanted to inform me that he was just put on my brother's case, and that he would be handling and looking into um, the circumstances surrounding the shooting, and uh, just wanted to let me know that um, he would be doing that. And just he was he was very um, kind. He, he told me I could call him if I had any questions. He cautioned me that this would take time, but that they were uh, looking into it, and he would give it his full attention. Again, I find it interesting that after three years, all all of a sudden I'm getting all these calls from people saying that they're, um, you know, looking back into um, the uh, death of my brother and uh, all all the conditions surrounding that. So it's, it's interesting timing.
4: The Ordonez family didn't receive a call, or so they thought. The telephone number and the investigation paperwork the state attorney's office had was not one they recognized, so wherever that voicemail was left, they never got it. I convey the message to my contact at the state attorney's office. Joe Marino gives permission for me to share his number with them. He gets a call. He said he had a good conversation, explained that it was much like the one Tom Cutshaw had, and was finally glad to hear from someone. I looked to Melba Pearson. She was a prosecutor for 16 years in Miami-Dade County. She served as deputy director of the ACLU of Florida, working on civil rights and criminal justice and police reform issues. And she's director now of prosecution projects at Gordon Institute for Public Policy at Florida International University. I want her to explain what a civil case versus a criminal is. And what winning that civil case could have meant for the family. And also what the ruling sovereign immunity in favor of the police department means.
0: You know, the reality is sovereign immunity is something that's in place to be able to protect people that are acting under what, you know, what we call the color of law. That basically they're acting as part of their lawful and legal duties and something horrible happens. So basically the argument was that the police officers were acting in their lawful capacity as police officers and that they encountered a situation and responded in a manner that was lawful. And also that was basically unavoidable and was not a situation they created. Now, can reasonable people differ on that? Absolutely. Right. But from a, from a legal perspective, the judge felt that there was not enough to be able to move this case forward and that the officers should be granted immunity.
4: They lost the civil case. Would the civil case have been what had given them some money for maybe the Frank's two girls? Is that, is that what a civil case would have ended up? The departments would have had to maybe pay out a settlement? I, I don't know how that works. Yes, so
0: many times when we have these types of police shooting cases, the civil route helps the families be able to pay for funeral expenses, you know, uh, household expenses, leave something as a legacy for the kids to help them go to college or whatever the case may be, kind of help make up for the, the financial absence of their loved one in the family structure. So the civil The civil law part of the world, right, is about money. The criminal side is about accountability in terms of, is someone going to jail? Is someone going to have a felony charge on their record? Or someone going to have to go to probation or whether it's a diversion program or some other means? But it's about the loss of liberty or freedom in some way, shape, or form is what we look to the criminal system for. We look to the civil system for that financial accountability and that ability to be able to give some sort of settlement or assistance to the family.
4: Lucy, Frank's mom, says she wishes the family could have conducted their own private investigation.
2: The the pain that she has, they, they close the case because
7: dice, of immunity. Yo digo, estamos en un país muy adelantado como is this
2: country in the world and uh, there's no just when it comes to this case
7: porque no tenemos dinero porque somos latinos
2: because we don't have the the resource the financial resources or because yeah. we're spanish
7: so, si tuviéramos dinero El caso porque tenemos dinero. If
2: we had the financial resources, we could fight, fight in court.
7: Entonces, como no dinero,
2: so we don't have the money.
7: Ellos quieren, quieren que murió eso so no es así. it's
2: like, like nothing's happened. Uh, we lost a human being and uh, no one's taken effect on that. No pues
7: yo cuando vi eso, yo dije, no, está en mi mente, no, no estoy en mi país. Aquí nos van a ayudar.
2: No, we're Ellos, not in my, we're not in my country. She's from Ecuador, so we're not in our country, so there's going to be justice because it's the best country in the world.
7: En mi mente dije, mi hijo se va a and
2: in her mind, her son's going to be saved.
7: They're going to, they're,
2: they're going to try to rescue him.
7: Porque como yo quién era since I knew who my son was, 100% no lo iban a tocar.
2: 100%. She's, uh, she's sure that the kidnaps weren't going to hurt her.
4: At the time of the shooting, Juan Diaz was the director of the Miami-Dade Police Department. He retired shortly after the high profile incident where 15 of his officers were involved. And while there was speculation that he may have been inclined to leave because of the events of December 5th, 2019, he made it clear that his decision to retire was in the works for a while. Miami New Times reported that sources they spoke with said that when Perez was appointed in 2016, he was very vocal about his intentions to retire in 2020. And so he did on January 12th of that year. But on December 6th, 2019, the day after the shooting, during an interview at Miami police headquarters, the director answered questions about how his officers responded to the hostage shootout, and he publicly offered his condolences.
6: The fact that officers moved forward to address great danger, not too far from there, you guys were there covering the story. On a February 14th, someone decided not to go forward when, when shots rang out, and the end result was a horrific result. These officers are showing courage moving toward danger. And that's what we have to be looking at here. You have the timeline that ended in, in the way it did. That's how it would have been prevented. And I, I want to pause for a second, first and foremost, because you know we, we have to um, express our sincere condolences to the, the family of the two innocent victims of that horrible ordeal that ended in such tragedy. You know, the pain that they must be going through, I can't even comprehend, so I can only empathize the pain that they're going through right now. Ultimately, we have to remember one thing. No one got up this, in that morning yesterday and decided that they were gonna take two innocent lives. We don't even know whose round struck them right now. It's kinda early on, but doesn't matter what the result is. The people responsible for this action, for this result, are the two gentlemen that decided to enter that store and commit this violent crime within our community.
4: Coming up next on The Florida Files, the kidnappers, who were they? And an odd twist of fate. That's next on The Florida Files. Are you a fan of The Florida Files? Tell us what you love about the series on Apple Podcasts and join other fans in leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts.